If I would have described 2020 to you a year ago, take yourself back to July of 2019, and if I would have stood here and said, guess what next year is going to look like? You would have scoffed. You would have said, here's another one of those doomsday preachers trying to bring revelation into the world where it doesn't belong, trying to create panic and fear as a way to sell religion. You never would have believed me. If I told you there was going to be unrest and disease and disruption and division, if I told you that schools and churches would be virtual and there would be protests and riots and overflowing hospitals, if I told you we had whole states on lockdown, mandatory masks and minimum social distance, empty airplanes and empty toilet paper aisles, you would have said, no, I don't think so. I can't imagine. And yet here we are. And amidst all of it, amidst all of the things that 2020 has come to be, we find ourselves with incredible opportunities. There are these pockets of incredible grace and generosity that we see. That opportunity abounds as a result of the place we find ourselves. But we find even deeper pockets around us of anger and bitterness and resentment. In the state house and on social media, we find a hellscape of vitriol and vicious bickering. And I use the word hell pretty purposely. George MacDonald, the 19th century Scottish author and minister, wrote this. He said, for the one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own king and my own subject. I am the center from which go out my thoughts. I am the object and the end of my thoughts. And we don't usually think of hell in, in that way and in those terms, but what George MacDonald has hit on is that this selfishness and this me-centric worldview actually perpetuates a hellishness around us, that 2020 has revealed what's been lurking below the surface for so long that our selfish motives and our self-centered lifestyle, our self-driven thinking has driven us into a greater chaos than we've ever known. Jesus prayed while he walked the earth. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was inviting us to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth. So it stands to reason that chasing our own will our own desires and our own plans, that doing the opposite of what Jesus said, which is to bring God's will to earth, if we chase our own will, then what will we get? Instead of heaven on earth, we get hell on earth. So what we desperately need in this season and what we desperately need is we, as a community, march together into the fall where division will only increase in an election year, where, where confusion will only grow as some states lock down and others don't, as some places have masks and others don't, as mandates change, come and go. We have to find a better place for ourselves. We desperately need followers of Jesus to act like it, to be the countercultural force that we were designed to be and to be peacemakers in a land of division. We need people of wisdom and understanding. And listen to the way that James describes it. In James chapter 3, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. Verse 18, he says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James says that humility is prized and that envy and selfish ambition, he calls them demonic. We don't use that word because we're afraid of of entering into a spiritual language that may be a little bit unfamiliar to others. And yet James clearly says that envy and selfishness are demonic. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, he says, you find disorder in every evil practice. If that's true, then what we can do is look around and where we see chaos, we can drive it back to envy and selfish ambition. And this applies broadly. It applies to politicians and ministers, to army generals and grandmothers. It applies to all of us. That all of us have the opportunity to put aside envy and selfish ambition and take up this righteousness and this peacemaking that James has laid out. He calls us to a heavenly wisdom rooted in peace-loving, considerate, submissive, and merciful living. He calls us peacemakers. Those who find themselves in Christ must then become peacemakers. People who sow in peace in order to reap a harvest of righteousness. And instead, Christians are blowing each other up online for disagreements about things that matter nothing in the scope of the kingdom. Those with self-distraint Self-restraint are actually managing to keep it civil online, and yet what we know to be true is that contempt is bubbling under the surface in so many. And contempt is dangerous. Contempt, contempt is conceived where selfishness reigns. Ask any marriage counselor, and contempt is the beginning of the end for a relationship. Anger you can work through. Disagreement you can work through. Contempt is something wholly different. Contempt is when you go, oh, those people. Contempt is when you hear of someone who disagrees with you And you roll your eyes preemptively. Listen to what James says about where this is going. James, he continues on. It's chapter 4 now. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but don't have, so you kill. You covet but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James lays out where all of this hellishness comes from. Wrong motives lead to contempt for those who are in the way of our selfish preferences. Wrong motives lead to contempt for those who are in the way of our selfish preferences. So if I prefer X and someone is saying Y, then they're standing in the way of me getting what I want. Therefore, I don't need them anymore. The result of this is plain to see that in general, our witness as the countercultural light to the present darkness has been broken. And yet we have an opportunity to change. Our countercultural witness has been broken because of what James calls selfish ambition. You and I have become distracted by the idols of our nation while we allow the heart of the kingdom to slip away. We've been distracted by the idols of our nation while we allow the kingdom to slip away. These idols of fear or freedom, they're rampant in our hearts. Jesus isn't surprised by your fear. Jesus is not opposed to your freedom. And yet any idol, anything that supersedes him, good, neutral, or otherwise, anything that supersedes Christ in your heart, anything that comes before the kingdom of heaven, becomes a dangerous thing when it gets in the way of us being first and foremost citizens of heaven and ambassadors of the king. 
fear and freedom drag us away. It's clearly seen in the mask debate that rages around us. So let's talk about masks for a minute. Our elders have been meeting for the last few months, always with an idea of when we relaunch, when we open the doors again, when we have people in our presence again and we can gather in person again, what will it look like? And things have changed. And the dynamic nature of the pandemic has, has kind of given us basically a whirlwind that we deal with. So every time we meet, there's new information and new ideas. And yet this last Thursday, we met with the idea that we were going to find our final spot. What would it be like to show up to church again? What are the expectations? What will you experience? And if I'm really honest with you, I will tell you that as we prepared to land on our final set of kind of protocols for relaunch on August 2nd, we have multiple elders that that express some doubts about masks, their requirements, their efficacy, what they represent. And yet, as our elders have met about this and we've been messaging about this and we sit in this room at a social distance and we attempt to navigate this together, the conversations weren't about fear or freedom. The conversations about whether we have to wear masks on a Sunday morning when we gather again or about how to best live as peacemakers how to best represent Jesus in our community, how to best make sure that the vulnerable and the lost and those who are struggling through darkness might find light and hope again. And every single elder submitted themselves not to their own preferences, not to selfish motives and ambitions. Every single elder submitted themselves to the larger goal that I, I read earlier, that goal that we would get as many people as possible to be meaningfully and safely welcomed into the rhythms of faith, welcomed into our shared mission to know Jesus and make him known. And so as we navigated through that, the only answer for us was, yeah, we're going to wear masks. If it gets one more person exposed to the kingdom, we're great with it. Like the CEO of Costco said when he mandated masks at every Costco in the country. He said, if it really goes well, we'll have saved a bunch of lives. And if it turns out they were worthless, it was a minor inconvenience for a really noble goal. And so on August 2nd, when people walk into this building again, we'll all be wearing masks. And when I'm not preaching and I'm sitting in my spot on the front row, I'll be wearing a mask. Not only because that's the state law, but that's because that's our submission to being peaceable and peacemakers in this place. And if it saves lives, we're thrilled. And if it turns out they were worthless all along, then the minor inconvenience was worth it anyway. Our elders sat around together, and I was humbled because I saw peace-loving, considerate, submissive, sincere men full of mercy who set aside their own thoughts and their own leanings and their own ideologies, and they said, but, but what of the gospel? And an other's first attitude landed us there. Thomas Howard, who wrote a book called The Splendor of the Ordinary, said that there are basically two ways to live. My life for you or my life for me? My life for you or my life for me? What he is implying is that you have a hundred opportunities every single day to either operate on the basis of my life for you or to turn it around and say my life is for me. To live as Jesus is to live our lives for others. It is in how you drive and how you shop. It is in how you neighbor and how you work. 
every single moment of every day is an invitation to live our lives for others. I saw this really plainly recently. My wife was in the hospital. She went into the hospital the week before we were supposed to go on our vacation. And we had set aside this whole week where we had a cottage rented and we were ready for uh, vacation. If there was ever a year we needed it, it was this, this year. But the COVID exhaustion was final. And then the week before, she goes into the hospital. She gets out after a couple days and we make it to our vacation house and we're going to give her fluids and rest and just sort of try to lay low. But, but guys, we made it. And the kids are happy and she's hopeful. And we're starting, we're just starting to rest. And she starts feeling bad again. And it goes from bad to worse. And the questions go from, I wonder if there's some medicine we get to, I wonder how quickly we can get to the ER. And so we scramble and I tell the kids to throw their stuff in bags as much as they can manage, get their toothbrushes, we're going home, we're abandoning a vacation house, and we book it, going way too fast on two-lane roads to get back to the hospital, put her in the ER again where she spends five more days in the hospital. And people showed us Jesus. People took their time to mow my grass when I wasn't looking. People spent their money to send us gift cards or provide meals. Greg, instead of leading worship, showed me worship when he gave his day off to go help me clean the vacation house that we had abandoned. It was Jesus. It was humbling. It was inspiring. And it fueled my desire to do the same for others. That a community rallied as the word trickled out. And what we saw over and over was my life for you. And I was the recipient. And it reminded me what it means for others when we do the same. It reminded me what it means when we sacrifice what God has given us for others, that it communicates something powerful, something profound. What people did for us was practice an elevated form of peacemaking. We think of peace in in 1960s marches or anti-Vietnam protests, we have these pictures of peace and hippies. This is not biblical peacemaking. Peacemaking is that in a world of chaos, Jesus brings something else. Peacemaking isn't about avoiding conflict. It's about breathing the saving and sacrificial love of Jesus into the world. That's what peacemaking is. Peacemaking is not about avoiding conflict. It's about breathing the sacrificial love and grace and salvation of Christ into a world that is broken and desperate for it. The world was in chaos. My personal world was in total chaos. And people brought me peace through their offerings. And so you and I have the responsibility and the opportunity to be peacemakers in a world that is in chaos. To, to practice kingdom living in a world where empire building is in vogue. And whether it's the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire, whether it's the British Empire or now the American Empire, empires are established by force and then feed on power and control to grow. Jesus gave up all power and control to establish a kingdom that ran opposed to our empires. Jesus gave up power and control. Jesus didn't campaign for power Jesus gave up all power so that we might know hope. 
Jesus turned chaos of sin into the order of salvation. He transforms the sorrow of death into the joy of life. Jesus is the countercultural beacon that we have to remember and follow. And Jesus did it through laying down proactive peacemaking along the way, through laying down his life for you and I. Jesus pioneered selfless love. Jesus pioneered my life for you, my peace for yours. I will give up my peace so that you might have some. So people looked at my life and my situation, and they gave up their money that I might have food. They gave up their time that my time might be saved. They gave up their effort so that my effort could be pointed in the right direction. Jesus gave up peace so that you might have it and then calls us to turn around and do the same. While Jesus walked the earth, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Not those who avoid conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who sow peace into a land of division, who sow peace into a world of chaos. That was in the midst of the Beatitudes. If you want to look up Matthew 5 and read the whole list, you can. But we see it as a list, and it's not a list. It's not a menu. The Beatitudes weren't a menu of options where some Christians would be merciful and others might be meek. The Beatitudes are a description of a transformed life of a believer. That heaven, having been placed into you, will now pour out and this is what it will look like. It's a prediction of what your life will appear to be once you have Christ in you. So as believers, we will be poor in spirit and we will mourn with those who mourn. We will be meek and we will seek righteousness. We will be merciful and pure of heart. We will be peacemakers. When Jesus is your king, you will be a peacemaker. And you will bring Jesus, the prince of peace, into every aspect of life. There's no off-limits place for Christ. He infects and infiltrates every aspect of our lives if we call ourselves believers. And Jesus also tells us what it'll lead to as he finishes the Beatitudes. He tells us what it's going to lead to. He says it's going to lead to your persecution. If you live out the kingdom of heaven in this empire-building world that we live in, you will be persecuted. You will be mocked and insulted. You will lose out financially, and it will not make sense to those around you. That's when you know you're doing it right. When a friend of ours who was on Facebook attempting to get people around her to at least acknowledge that leadership was trying hard in our local school board. Hey, they're, they're trying to do our best for you. Hey, just hang in here with us. As the conversation turned more and more vicious, she kept trying to be a peacemaker. And what she got in return was persecution. Someone sent it to me and said, hey, you should see this. And I saw it. I said, that's peacemaking. That's Christ on display. She didn't win the argument. She sowed peace into a place of chaos. Whether you're on Facebook or in the business world, the world will not get it. I'll share a story that a friend of mine told me. A friend of mine is a CEO of CEOs. He runs the largest network of Christian businesses, CEOs and leaders in the country. And so he's the CEO of a group of hundreds of CEOs and, and business leaders. And his job, his uh, goal as this organization, what they do is attempt to get business leaders and CEOs to put their Christian practice and their Christian values into the marketplace to run their businesses not as something separate and compartmentalized, but something holistically Christian. And he tells me the story that I'm going to play a video for you in a moment. He tells me the story of this company in Boston, this pharmaceutical manufacturing kind of company, and they have uh, like top secret intellectual property that allows them to do what they do. And part of what they do is they then share that with the pharmaceutical companies that use it because they have to help them understand what the process is going to be. 
along the way, one of these companies, a $10 billion pharmaceutical company, they got actual proof. Emails were forwarded and, and real smoking gun proof was sent to them that this $10 billion company was attempting to sell their intellectual property out from under them so that they might partner with someone else and make their drugs for cheaper. The lawsuit, the lawyers told the CEO, would have netted this company millions, tens of millions. It would have been quick and easy. The proof was there. It wasn't even going to have to be litigated. They would quickly and easily recoup millions. So what does the peacemaker do? I'll let you watch with me. As a leader, I, I have a responsibility to the employees of this business to run a business that defends the things that are our intellectual property, that are unique to us, that drive our economy. Packaging Technology Group is a business that designs, builds, and engineers shipping systems, and in particular, we do that for the biotech and the biopharmaceutical industry. Our core values are faith, relationship, courage, and creativity. And we want to walk as faithful people, and we believe that if we can have a commonality in things like integrity, then we can then walk in relationship. The most important part of our business, because we're engineering, is intellectual property, is secrets that we will both share with, it, with each other. Uh, for us as a company, very dynamic things, things that we're, we're trend-setting in the industry. The relationship we have with the client that we had conflict with was an excellent relationship. It had been over 10 years, and there was no um, clue whatsoever that there was any possible conflict in the future or on the horizon. Everything could not have been better. I'm the kind of person that I signed a contract and I never want to go back to it because the personal relationship is the most important thing. And in my entire business career, I've never had to pull a contract out of a drawer until now. What happened was, the, the breach was that some of those secrets were shared and they were shared with parties that never ever should have been party to those, that really put our business at risk in a, in a substantial way because everything that we are is about our ideas. When you're offended, the first thing you want to do is to lash out. And I had to really battle that because I wanted to lash out. I was hurt. I was wounded. The company was wounded. The Lord was saying to me to be still. And so it spoke to me clearly that I needed to not work in Bill's power, but I needed to work in God's power. Uh, the Bible says that we're supposed to be peaceable. We're, we're supposed to seek uh, to walk in unity with, with people as best we can. And part of living out who we are is coming directly to them and letting them know that this violation had happened. A lot of thought went into the final action that we took, which was to send to the executives of the company a letter. I didn't really know what to expect. My greatest hope was that they would receive it and take action. But once again, I found myself thinking, oh, okay, this can go a million different ways. We just don't know who this person is. When the senior executive came down and greeted us, he was very friendly and there was immediate rapport. We started sharing about our families and our life experiences as we walked to the end of the building where his offices were. When he shared that his son and daughter-in-law had just given birth to a child with a very rare disease, uh, immediately it impacted me because I am the father of a special needs son.
I couldn't care what we were there for because God was all over me and all I could think about was ministering to this man and I really felt God shared with me while he was talking that this was uh, a mucopolysaccharide disease, exactly what my son had. I said, you know, was this mucopolysaccharide disease? And I gave some of the symptoms and he looked at me like I had three heads. He looked like he almost fell off his chair. And he said, oh my gosh, yes. And he was teary-eyed. The odds of that man also having a granddaughter that was just born with this very ultra-rare disease, one in 1.5 million, uh, was, was, had to be an act of God. And I knew at that moment during the meeting, it's God's hand and I just can't believe it. I still stand in awe of the things that God does and, and God did in this. The wonderful thing about the story is not only did God show up for ministry, but God also restored the relationship just because he can, just because that's who he is. And today we have a restored relationship and a renewed contract and we are rebuilding the relationship and I am confident that where the break was, it will be stronger than it's ever been before. And so what we see in a video is a $10 million example of what we all have the opportunity to do every single day. The stakes aren't $10 million for how we'll respond to someone whose preference opposes ours, whose opinion differs from ours. We all have opportunities. And what we see in an example of selflessness and peacemaking, in a willingness to take our anger and submit it to a Christian worldview, what we see is that we then become these countercultural people. We become the countercultural forces that overflow with opportunity to make the gospel known. What they don't tell you in the video, what my friend tells me on the aside is, because when this Boston pharmaceutical manufacturing CEO reaches out to the Chicago-based company and sends the, the letter to the other CEO, the response is not a phone call, it's an invitation. We'd like to send our plane, will you come meet with our board of directors? And this CEO from the video goes and sits with the board of directors of this $10 billion company, and they say, can you just tell us why? Why would you have done it this way? Of all the avenues available to you, why did you do it that way? And what Bill would say is what they essentially invited me to do was to come and share the gospel. That had I litigated, never would have happened. Had I taken the approach the world would have prescribed, it never would have happened. But instead, I go and the CEO and I both have this common bond of, of this rare disease in our family. And other board members are asking me about faith. And he goes, I have ongoing relationships. People are coming to faith actively in powerful positions. They're understanding that there is a countercultural way to live that opposes the way the rest of the world is going. Lives are transformed because somebody chose peacemaking. So instead of the hell that is brought by preference defending, by the angry at the world pugilist that we are becoming, instead of that, we get earth as it is on heaven. That's what that story is. There's a CEO getting in his BMW, getting in his Audi, and we go, oh, the, the peacemaking, you have to be a hippie, and you have to give away all your stuff. No, no, no. Peacemaking means you have to bring the kingdom into everything you do. 
And that guy can reach people I'll never reach. And so his willingness to be a peacemaker and live counterculturally will change the world around him. And as a community, we have people in every different aspect, every different job area, every different place in this region. From professors to retail workers, from stay-at-home moms, we have firefighters, military people, ministers. We have students. We have retirees. We have people that through the way that God has wired and ordered your life, you have access to people that I won't. I have access to people that you won't, but it requires each of us to seize the opportunity of the day to say, I will live the countercultural peacemaking that God has laid out for me. I will live that out and watch as he works through me. I will see heaven on earth, and how do we get there? I will say that how you see the world is the primary driver of how you will walk through it. Life is hard. This is not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, we would do it naturally, but the easy thing to do is to fall into our fallenness. It's not supposed to be easy. Read Genesis 3. This is the deal. This is how we got here. That there is a fall, that there is a break in trust between man and God. Every day offers you the chance to lean into oppression or opportunity. Every day offers you the chance to lean into oppression or opportunity. Every day gives you the opportunity to lean into the fall or to lean into the resurrection. And you have the choice. Do you lean into the fall or do you lean into the resurrection? Do you lean into distrust with God and enmity with the world or do you lean into a resurrected Savior who commands us to live as peacemakers? And those are our only two options. I lean into the fall or I lean into the resurrection. And as a resurrection people, we should look radically different than the world around us. That is the entirety of the Christian experience. You and I have eternity happening now. You and I have eternal life confirmed. You and I are sealed into the Lamb's book of life. We have nothing to worry about when it comes to tomorrow. And so that frees us up to live today in a countercultural and radical way that should make our neighbors go, what is wrong with those people from covenant? Yes, COVID is bumming everyone out. Yes, it has blown up our normal. It has stolen our comfort. It has made everything harder. And if you focus there on the oppression of the day, you will find yourself rolling your eyes at manufactured enemies as you doom scroll the internet every single day. Because pride, my life for me, says I can't believe this is happening to me. Christ-like humility, my life for you, says, I can't believe this is happening. How can I help? Every obstacle is an opportunity. Along the journey, every single obstacle is an opportunity. When we focus on the opportunities around us, when we become the countercultural, sacrificial people we've been called to be, the opportunities just start showing up. Because focusing on oppression just obscures the opportunity that God has put in your path. Focusing on the oppression just obscures the opportunity that God has put in your path. If we are so busy focusing on what the world is doing to me, then we lose sight of what God is calling us to do for the world. Your neighbors are asking the questions right now. Your friends, your relatives, your coworkers, they're asking the questions where do I turn? In a world where I don't know where to go for what's true and what's real, where do I turn? Who do I trust? When this group says one thing and this other group says another, 
Who do I trust? And where is truth? In fake news and statistics that are manipulated by everybody on every side, where is truth? We have the answer. The answer is Jesus. Where do I turn? Turn to Jesus. That he will secure you and give you hope beyond today. Who do I trust? Trust in Jesus, knowing that he has given his life, that you might have a life that you could never imagine. Where is truth? Truth is Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life, he is here. And it's upon us to give that to others because they're all asking the same questions. And if we focus on the oppression with them, then we miss the opportunity to share the love of God with them. There are opportunities every day. And so my hope and my prayer for us as a community as we move into the season to come is that we see this season of uncertainty and unrest as our uniquely appointed opportunity to become gospel peacemakers, to breathe the saving sacrificial love of Christ into the world every single day, to wake up and the first thing we ask in the morning is, God, what opportunities have you set before me? What appointments do you already have set? What things in my day are for me And what things in my life can I turn and give to others? And we, together as a community, will begin to do a slow and steady march towards a counter-cultural, peacemaking, radical, loving reality that is the kingdom of heaven, that is here now if we'll only recognize it. We will go from wrong to right and from death to life. We will be people of the fall that have become children of the resurrection. And as we welcome others into the resurrection, as we welcome our friends and neighbors into the resurrection, it's an exponential growth model. As they catch light of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, whether it's in their company going, maybe I won't sue, but I'll share the gospel. Or it's in your neighborhood going, maybe I won't argue, but I'm going to share the gospel. In subtle, beautiful, sacrificial, peacemaking ways as we lay our preferences and our comfort and our security down, our lives will be laid down and even broken for others. Because that's what we've been called to do. Church, it is not supposed to be easy. But what Jesus has promised us is that it will be so, so good. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for a challenge today. I thank you for opening my eyes to the opportunities around us and uh, the obscuring of where we've been. Father, I would confess that I have been focused on the oppression of 2020 and the, the doom scrolling and the reading of what it is we're supposed to do as an organization. And I have at times lost sight of the opportunities you have given me with friends and neighbors to share your love and your sacrificial hope. Father, I repent personally. Lord, I reject. I reject all of the obscuring of who you are by all that the world is throwing at us. Lord, I pray instead that you would show me opportunities. And as an extension of that, that our community, we would get beyond the oppression of what the year or the time or the mandate or the ordinance is doing to us. And Father, we would get on with what the opportunities are that you've laid in front. Father, put Jesus at the center of everything we do, that we might represent him well. And in doing so, we might welcome new people into resurrection life, into freedom and hope and grace beyond wildest imaginations. Father, remind us of who you are 
and who you've called us to be. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.